The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you are in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, just breaking things down. What does it mean for investors? I'm your host, Bob Pisani, and once again, we are back live from the New York Stock Exchange. Today on our first show back on the floor, we're honing in on the top trends in the ETF space, why the clean energy trade is losing steam, why equal weighted funds are suddenly getting more love, and what the flows tell us about where the money is headed in 2021. Here's my conversation with John Hoffman, head of ETFs and Index Strategy Americas at Invesco, along with Doug Jonas. He's the head of exchange-traded products at the New York Stock Exchange. Doug, I want to start with you. Uh, if 2020 was uh, the big year for bond ETF inflows, 2021 seems the big year for equity, particularly plain vanilla S&P 500 type inflows into equities really large this year. What's driving these inflow and what other trends are you seeing? Give us a 30,000 foot view. Yeah, it's been really interesting. The growth rate of ETFs just hasn't slowed down all through the pandemic. And as you mentioned, last year really focused on fixed income. This year, $331 billion coming into ETFs. Majority, almost 80%, equity ETFs. There's a few themes that are still running out there. Uh, first and foremost is adoption rates. Uh, BBH, Brown Brothers, Harriman, they put out an interesting report showing investor adoption of ETFs across almost every segment. And what's really fascinating to me, it's not just you and me as readers retail buying ETFs now, advisors are more and more showing ETFs to their clients and putting them in portfolios, institutions more and more adopting ETFs, and it's because the wrapper offers efficiency, tends to be a little lower cost, tends to be a much higher tax efficiency. Second key thing that I'm seeing, Bob, is active. Active ETFs continue to grow over 100 different active issuers now on the market, over 500 active ETFs now, 70-some launched already year-to-date. As If you're an active manager, historically, you might not have been interested in ETFs. You'd have to show your holdings every day. That's now changed. We've got models that can fix that. So a lot of active adoption. And third is this sort of holy grail of ETFs, conversion direct from mutual funds to ETFs. Guinness Atkinson did it first in March. Today, second ever time it's happened ever, adaptive worked with Nottingham as a platform and they converted a, a mutual fund 150 million converted today to the New York Stock Exchange in an ETF AGOX. So there's a lot of these really interesting moving parts all of which are bringing together a lot of cash flow into the industry. I want to talk more about uh, sort of the plumbing and the ETF trends but John I want to turn to you and get your thoughts on sort of uh, sector and, uh, and individual ETF moves because you're one of the biggest providers out there. Um, what I saw John was the slowdown in green energy in 2021. And I wonder if you can just sort of talk to us about that a little bit uh, and what you are starting to see here. Uh, you run two of the biggest clean energy ETFs that are out there, the Solar Energy ETF, TAN, uh, and the broader fund, the Green Energy Index, PBW. Both of them are 40% off of their highs that, interestingly, they hit in February as interest rates hit new highs. Can you just tell us that this was such a hot trend last year and uh, CNBC viewers love investing in thematic tech and uh, clean energy. 40% uh, off their highs is quite notable. What's, what's stalling clean energy out right now? Yeah, Bob, I think we, let's widen out the lens a, a little bit here. And, you know, let's go back to last year. We, you know, during the election, leading up to the election, flows started to really pick up in the space. Uh, in 2020, both of those funds were up over 200%. 
Um, and when you think about the, the transformation to clean energy, uh, we think about it over decades, you know, not days. Uh, and so again, Bob, I joke that after 15 years, uh, you know, this is an overnight success story uh, in the space in sustainable and clean energy. You go back to the early days when we launched these funds, it was a new sector, a new space, a lot of new companies. Uh, it's still a relatively new space. So you're gonna see some of that volatility that you're pointing out. But when you, again, widen out the lens and look at the big picture here, the move to sustainability, the move to clean energy, uh, again, it's not just a U.S. thing. It's a global phenomenon. Yeah. And the money that's moving into the space uh, is going to be significant. Uh, and so, again, a little bit of a pullback here. But when you widen it out and look at the trends, uh, and again, it's still a small market. We were looking at the yeah. market cap of all of the names in PBW, the Clean Energy Fund. Again, exclude Tesla. Add up the market cap of all of those names, and you get to a company about the size of Johnson and Johnson. And so, we think yeah. there's still, you know, a fair amount of uh, of headroom in the space, especially as this transformation uh, to clean energy plays out. Again, driven by regulation. I, I, I can't help John, but uh, but but think that a lot of this reason it topped out was at the same time that interest rates topped out in mid-February. A lot of these companies don't necessarily make a lot of money, and I think that certainly was an aspect in it. But it hasn't prevented people from launching new new ETFs, uh, particularly green ETFs. You've got a green building ETF, symbol GBLD, you launched just a month ago. What, what's in that very briefly? Yeah, so again, we pioneered this space of thematics. We continue to provide more precise ways to get exposure to the, to the space. And so this is about, look, this conversation on decarbonization, you can't have it without looking at the real estate sector. 38% of the carbon emissions come from buildings. And so this is really about providing investors a precise way to invest in the real estate sector uh, as it relates to cleaner and greener buildings. And so this is the full ecosystem of, of green buildings, every stage, construction, yeah. redevelopment, retrofitting. Bob, it's a continuation of the same theme here. You yeah. can't help but think, Doug, uh, I, this was the hottest thing in, in 2020. It's cooled off a little bit. I think he's right about the long term, but, you know, it's a, it's tough when you're 40 percent off of the highs. It, it is, but at the same time, I mean, John's breaking new ground, whether it's the green building ETF or other ESG-related ETFs. I mean, now, there's now almost 100 ETFs here in the U.S. Europe's really dominated the ETF space in ESG investing, but we're catching up, and, and we've got $11 billion in investments coming into that these thematic, if you will, ETFs here in the U.S. And, and it is a combination of conversation. I think, John, you're absolutely right. Some of the advisor conversation now is, should this be part of my core and not just thematic? And, and I think we're starting to see that again. Some of the response rates and surveys, some of the conversations we're having at the exchange, our investors are starting to take a little bit of a tilt. Uh, you know, BlackRock joined, joined the fray, if you will, the, earlier this year. They launched two ESG ETFs and actually broke the record yeah. on first, first day assets under yeah, management. So more and more investors are really turning on to the idea of, hey, maybe this is my core portfolio and not just a thematic or, or a satellite. Another thing that I, I've noticed, uh, John, is uh, the reflation trade is very much in evidence, uh, particularly commodities. You've got a commodity index tracking fund. The symbol is PDBC, Peter, Dog, a Boy, Charlie. Uh, that's a basket of commodity futures contracts that, of course, rolls over. Um, big inflows, I see, outperforming the S&P 500 this year. Um, tell us about what kind of people are buying these commodity funds and how do you protect against that negative role? We all know about that problem with owning futures co contracts, particularly commodity futures contracts with that negative role. 
Yeah, thanks, Bob. So, so first of all, address the, the role topic. This strategy actually uses a smart role technology. It looks at the curve of each of the underlying commodities and finds the most optimal place on the curve to roll. And so it is seeking to get ahead of you know, issues around contango and backwardization. But let's back up a second here. A number of analysts think we are entering a new super cycle in commodities. Again, we're not sure about that. But when you look at you know, the inflation, the commodity fundamentals, uh, the discussion around that, what's happening from the administration as it relates to infrastructure, clean energy spending, electric vehicles. This is what's prompting these client conversations. How do I participate uh, in these movements? And so at Invesco, as you point out, Bob, we pioneered that space with commodity ETFs, broad exposure. Uh, this particular fund has doubled from 2.7 billion to 5.4 billion uh, just this year, just in, since January of this year. Again, a simple way to get broad exposure to your metals, your ags, yeah. your energy uh, in a single solution with a smart role technology built into it. And, and yet commodities as an asset class, we've recognized commodities as an asset class for, for decades. Um, and yet, given what's been happening in the last 10, 15 years, Nobody owns them. It's hard to tell anybody, you know, you should own 5% of your portfolio in a commodity ETF even, just like it became hard to argue about having gold. It's a tough call, and yet that would have been the smart call. It, 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 you know, it is interesting, right? There's an academic science here that does show having commodities as part of a portfolio does reduce overall volatility of a portfolio, and, and you know, but you're right. Usually that's played out in the form of gold. Nothing wrong with that. Gold's performed really well over the last few years, and maybe even decade if you start to chart it out longer term. So, but at the same time, we look at commodity flows this year, Bob, and what do we see? Year to date, almost $10 billion leaving gold ETFs. But what I think what John and team are doing, right, is they're starting to say, hey, maybe we look at commodities at a broader lens. Maybe we take a step back. And John's team putting together multiple commodities in one place. Historically, really hard to access that market. You'd have to be trading your own futures, become, you know, almost a sophisticated institution. What's great about ETFs is they're now bringing that and democratizing that space and bringing commodities, futures. They're able to put a nice, clean wrapper on it, bring it to an end investor. I agree. Yeah, Diversification is, is really a key to success in any portfolio. It's hard to argue about what you should buy in commodities, but it, it, a simple strategy would buy a broad, diverse commodity fund like this one that, that holds it. John, you were making a point? I was going to say, yeah, and even going back to why the flows are so strong, it's about providing the technology providing very efficient exposure to, these, to this return pattern. In this instance, we're talking about commodities, which have low correlation, to equities and bonds. And so when you think about building, Bob, to your point, a diverse portfolio, having an allocation to commodities, we've seen a number of large institutions keep that as a strategic allocation long term, not trying to time it, but uh, you know the benefit of that diversification. And your question around who's buying this, and Doug's point, it's individual investors, it's retail, it's, it's wealth managers, and it's some of the largest institutions in the world getting this highly efficient return pattern delivered through the ETF. And so I think all very valid comments there. Yeah. Uh, I want to move on and talk about uh, one interesting trend, of course, is the move into plain vanilla ETFs, equity ETFs like the SPY. But at the same time, I notice, uh, John, your equal weight ETF, the RSP, which is very popular out there, has attracted a lot of inflows. In fact, uh, the assets under management, the, the, uh, the shares outstanding are 30 percent higher in the last five months. That's quite a move for such a big fund. Of course, the RSP equally weights the S&P 500 as opposed to the 
market capitalization weighted S&P funds, which are far and away the more prevalent one. John, why is equal weight suddenly more attractive to some class of investors obviously has been very uh, interested in putting money to work in that space in the last four or five months. It has. And, and, and Bob, look, I, I'd use an analogy here. When you go to the doctor uh, and they're checking you, they look at your vital signs, your temperature, your pulse, your blood pressure. They listen to your breathing. They get a quick gauge on your health. Starting about eight months ago, we started to hear from clients that they were concerned with some of the vital signs on these large market cap weighted indices. And it was around two things, concentration and valuation. Uh, the big tech names have you know, gotten even bigger. They're dominating the indices. Uh, in some cases, you know, they were up over 25%. The top 10 names were making up 25% of the cap weighted exposure. And so you've got to go back to 1975 to find that level of concentration. And even then, it was more diverse. It wasn't highly concentrated in technology. So, Bob, yeah. we had a lot of clients come to us looking to get a more balanced approach. They wanted to stay in U.S. equities, but they wanted a more balanced approach. Top 10 names in this, 2.5%, not 25%. Yeah. So a more balanced approach to the market, and that's what was driving a lot of those flows over the last period. Bob, I would mentioned, though, it's not just a recent phenomenon. This fund goes back to 03. Had you invested a yeah. dollar in the equal weight S&P 500 in 03, you'd have $6.7 today versus 5.4 in cap weighted. So it's, it's, a, it's a trend that is relevant now, but it's been uh, important for a while. Yeah, it's, it's a close call. If you, it, from a in classic investor perspective, I'm a Jack Bogle disciple, Burton Malkiel guy, so you want to have broad diversification, of course. The question is, does equal weight give you truly broad diversification? A traditional guy might say, well, market cap exists for a reason, because bigger companies have more important weight, and yep, therefore they yep, should have yep. a bigger weight. It's a it, tough argument, it but does. I get the whole equal weight idea. It does. Uh, you know, And you know my background, of course, having lived and breathed the market cap weighted world for most of my, my, my history. But there's also a conversation to be had right of, well, if I'm overweight, maybe as my core portfolio in market cap weight, and I, I start to believe in mid-cap or small-cap. Do I have to go pure mid-cap, pure small-cap, or can I take something like an RSP or an equal weight and actually add it to the portfolio and give me exposure to new places? So even someone who's a purist on the market cap weighting can still look at something like an equal weight and say, hey, is this an interesting way to start to add other parts of the investment experience or the other parts of the mid and small cap market at a different weight than, than yeah. maybe going pure? So it is, it is an interesting blend, and it all comes down to, look, ETFs give us this option. ETFs give us a nice, easy way to do this versus going out and buying hundreds of stocks and, and having to cross-bid that spreads, et cetera. The old school guys would say, look, you are, are certainly have five stocks or 20% of the S&P. Okay, you're right. Um, and uh, yes, there's all these other things like energy and banks that have underperformed for a long time and you haven't, you know, you haven't done anything with that. But now we see value outperforming. We see energy doing better. We see banks doing better. And so those guys, if you're a market cap weighted guy, you're now getting the benefit of those that move up in value and energy and tech is moving down. So the market's rotating, but you own the S&P 500, so you're in good shape. That's the old argument of the market cap weighted guys, and I get it, but I, I, this is a fascinating discussion about equal weight. But I want to move on, John. Uh, leisure and entertainment, I want to talk a little bit about the reopening uh, story here. PEJ, you have one of the big ones in this space, and it, this sort of buys stuff that's right across the whole leisure and entertainment space. So you own Disney, you own Chipotle and this thing, you own Airbnb. Uh, at the same time, uh, have we, yet it 
topped out in early March. Uh, have we pushed the reopening trade about as far as uh, we can right now? Is all the optimism now essentially in the reopening and the entertainment? You know, everybody's going to go out and have a good time trade. Yeah, you know, look, th this was a fund uh, that we launched over 15 years ago. It sat at very low capital for a long period of time. Uh, actually, about a year ago, it was $50 million. It ended 2020 uh, at $700 million. It's a billion six now. Uh, so it was a way uh, the clients looked at to position for this reopening trade, if you will. And to your point, Bob, you know, there was not a lot of leisure and entertainment during the pandemic. Uh, these names, you know, were, were beaten up pretty good uh, during the pandemic. But to your point, you've got a basket here of 32 companies focused in the leisure and entertainment names that have been benefiting from the reopening trade. Uh, and we continue to see uh, clients add capital to the portfolio. Again, a precise way to get exposure uh, to these names that have been beaten up so hard. I can't help but think, you know, how much more optimism. We had a joke for the last few weeks, peak everything. You know, it's basically the earnings are just blowout. You know, they're 20% above what any, the analysts thought. They've been wrong again. The, they're bringing up second quarter and third quarter earnings numbers. The economic data up until a few days ago has been killing it. Uh, much better than anticipated. So with, with this thing evolved sort of like peak everything, like how much better could it possibly get? We now know about the reopening store. We all know there's going to be a giant party of sorts this summer because everyone's going to want to get out. Yeah, I mean, w we talk about that excitement, but even you and I, right, walking in the building this morning, <clears throat> felt amazing, right? It, yeah. it, it, seeing each other, being a part of it, how great is it going to be to experience some of that and actually go out and attend these things and go be a part of the opening economy? So a lot of it has been focused on it's coming, but a lot of it hasn't really been focused on we're actually going and doing it. And so I think there is a bit of a, of a natural excitement about bringing people back together and, and then going out and actually being able to do these things. And so maybe that parlays into the next level of growth. Yeah, well, I'm very excited about being back myself. Uh, the New York Stock Exchange is sort of emblematic, I say, of what's happening around the rest of the country. Uh, it's been open, closed in March, opened in May, and it's been open ever since. But it's been on a, a, a fairly small staffing level. You've been doing a lot of work from home, everybody else. But now everybody's slowly coming back in. And I think the NYSE is being a leader in that. And slowly but surely, more people are going to go back to work over the summer. Some people, there'll be more work from home. But I, I'm a good example. Here I am. I'm, I'm back. We've got to show some leadership, you and me, and be back with, uh, to work with people. So I'm delighted to be back, and I, I think it's going to be a wonderful uh, summer. I'm, I'm very excited to be back here at the New York Stock Exchange. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be continuing the conversation with Doug Jonas from the New York Stock Exchange. And, and Doug, uh, you were talking on the show about trends in ETFs, of course, inexorably. More money keeps coming in year after year. We're, uh, what, near $6 trillion in assets under management in the United States? Over $6 trillion, pushing closer and closer to that $7 trillion, Seven trillion. Mark. Yeah, and, and cash flow is just continues to dominate to the positive side. You know, year over year, we always talk about where things are going. This year, equity ETFs seem to be get, gathering the majority of the cash flow. You know, if we look at the $331 billion, out of that $262 billion is equities. It's about 80%. Uh, the majority of the remainder is in fixed income. So, that, so even with fixed income continue to, to gyrate and fluctuate, 
Uh, they're still bringing in assets, but it's really going into equities. I mean, that's where that's where people are excited about. It's where people are investing. And what I see in the mutual fund industry is, of, of course, uh, obvious continuing concern about that um, because the model works better for ETFs. So we're starting to see conversions, actual conversions yeah. of companies who run right. mutual funds and then converting them into ETFs. That's right. There's only been a few, but are they going to be? Are we going to see this as a real trend? And is this a genuine threat to the mutual fund industry? It, it could be. I mean, if you if you think about it, we've talked about the idea of this conversion almost like a holy grail for, for probably over a decade. And there was all these stumbling blocks and hurdles. And look, a lot of really smart people out there uh, have worked really hard on it. And now here, I can tell you at the New York Stock Exchange, we did our first conversion with Guinness Atkinson. That was at the end of March. They, they converted two ET funds directly to ETFs. Today, via the Nottingham platform, uh, was the was the second time it's ever happened, and and that was through Adaptive Investments ticker symbol AGOX. This morning we converted 150 million dollars direct from a mutual fund to an ETF. So the answer is yes. If you're an active manager and you're looking at the ETF space and saying, oh wow, there there's potential uh, efficiencies for ta for taxation, a potential efficiency to reduce my overall cost of investment, and I can get right into the right. ETF space. I don't have to give up my track record, I don't have to give up right. my assets, and start at zero and compete against the big guys, yeah. boy, what a great way to do it via conversion. E efficiencies in taxation I is completely understand because of the ETF structure, but what about lower fees? So like, just so the viewers understand this, if, I'm, if I own XYZ mutual fund that's an actively traded equity uh, mutual fund and it is charging, pick a number, one 0.2% or 120 basis points. Um, is it probably the case that instead of 120 basis points, I'm going to have the same mutual fund, except now it's an ETF wrapper, but it'll be, what, 30 basis points? I don't know. Is yeah. it going to be, are <laughs> they going often, to be lower? They, they, more often than not, they're going to be lower. The, the reason being the, the infrastructure itself tends to have about a 20 basis point cost that's usually able to be overcome by the asset manager and then immediately given back to the investor. So our expectation is, yes, you'll see this drop. If we look at active, if we just sort of carve up the ETF industry and say, well, what's going on in active in general? On average, active ETFs have about a 56 basis point expense ratio. If we look at just the active ETF industry and you compare that to, to active mutual funds, typically over 100 basis points. So right out of the gate, we know ETFs as a structure tend to be much lower cost. So we do expect there to be a cost savings for the end investor. There's also then the cost savings of new money coming in, mm -hmm. right? So if I'm a long-term holder, if you buy and hold a mutual fund, all new dollars coming into a mutual fund, what happens? They've got to go out, they've got to go buy the stocks they're going to own. So they've got to cross bid ass spreads, pay commissions. In an ETF, that all happens outside of the fund. And so for you and me as an investor in an active you know, mutual fund versus an active ETF, we're going to tend to be better off based on even these sort of intrinsic yeah. costs we tend not to think about. And, and people say to me, well, all right, so it's 120 basis points for this actively managed mutual fund, and now I'm going to get the same management, and it's going to be in a ETF. ETF wrapper, it's going to be 60 basis points. That's a 60 basis points difference. Is that really a big difference? And, and the simple answer is maybe not if you do it by a one-year basis, but over, over decades, the power of compounding uh, you know, interest, the great power of compounding interest, the answer is yes. That's right. It is. A, it does That's matter. Right. And you've always talked about being a Bogle disciple, right? And Bogle wrote he, books about this idea that all it, if you just remove a little bit of cost into your portfolio and add up that over time, 
the geometric compounding is pretty dramatic. We can just Google it, anyone listening in. Uh, but you're right, any, any amount of growth that we can add to the portfolio through reduced expenses are going to be great for the end investor. And it's also access, right? You and I as an investor may not have access to every single active manager just due to platforms, platform fees, but everybody can access the New York Stock Exchange, and, yeah. that, and that's global. So for end investors, this sort of revolution, of, if you will, of conversion is, is dramatic because now all of a sudden we can start to tap into the best active managers out there. Uh, people have been excited and for good reason about Kathy Wood, but yeah. what about some of the biggest asset managers in the world that maybe you haven't had access to, yeah. like the Dodge and Cox of the world or the DFAs of the world? They're now coming into the, to the ETF uh, ecosphere, right? You've got Putnam coming in in the next few months. So these are big name, big asset managers have done fantastic work in the active space are now going to offer yeah. ETFs. And of course, Dodge and Cox and DFA, two very famous value managers, very highly respected in the business. And it's very exciting to see that. Uh, and remember, now you're getting access to world class management now at reduced cost. That's what it means to me. That's what I tell people. What does it mean? You're getting the best people out there at a reduced cost. And if you're an advisor, let's say you, you uh, are outsourcing and you're using models. We're, we're seeing more and more of these strategists add models together. One of the issues has always been uh, settlement, right? We've got a time settlement of stocks with ETFs with mutual funds, and mutual funds have a different settlement cycle. And so it's been hard for them to package up a full model using both ETFs and mutual funds. Well, all of a sudden, if the mutual fund is wrapped in an ETF, I can, I can time that. And so there's also this idea that some of the strategists and growth models are now going to wrap more and more active ETFs in where they may not have come, you know, done that yeah. with you, a fund. You've you talked in the past about the network effects of ETFs, that it, network effect is, is more people adopt whatever you were talking about. In this case, ETFs, they become uh, more efficient. Uh, network models come into play. So I think of, what, $5 trillion in, in uh, equity ETFs out there, and the U.S. stock market is, I don't know, $40 trillion, something like that. So it still seems small, and yet it's growing uh, every year. What, what, is, what is the effect of this, of, of more people moving into ETFs? How does it change the stock market? What, describe that network effect. Sure. Well, the good news is it really doesn't change the stock market. We can measure that today. We look at trading today, and we see that, you know, uh, on average, about 9 out of 10 trades in the ETF world have no net impact or no net effect in the, in the underlying stock market. So we measure it. We make sure uh, that everything continues to trade uh, accordingly. The net effect is really on the other side. It's you and I as an investor. It's an institution as an investor. Our overall costs of investing go down. It becomes easier to invest. It becomes cheaper to invest. It becomes more tax efficient, which broadens out the interest in investing. That's great news, right? That helps those who maybe have been left behind in the investing revolution come on board and actually participate. You know, we always talk about democratization. It brings people to the table faster, earlier. You know, even at the retail level, uh, there's been whatever we want to call it, the Robin Hood effect, right, of people putting a little bit of money into individual stocks. They can do it in ETFs. You can buy one share of an ETF and have exposure immediately to hundreds of underlying securities. That, that, that's been really powerful. It's that next wave that we're seeing now where it's the advisors, advisors saying to their end clients, hey, we're not going to own a mutual fund. We're actually just going to buy the ETF. It's better for you. Or an institution who used to go out and buy it all themselves is now saying, hey, we're going to just own the ETF. It's cheaper for us. Yeah. The ETF, con the conversion from mutual funds to ETF is very exciting to me because now you can show wholesale. <clears throat> uh, and I think that that's 
going to turn into a major event uh, this year. Doug Jonas, uh, head of ETFs at the New York Stock Exchange, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And I am very happy to be back in a place I have been since 1997 on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Doug, thank you very much for joining us. As always, thanks for having me here, Bob. Great to see you in person. Thank you. That's it for today. I'm Bob Pisani. Thank you for listening. And make sure you tune in next week. And in the meantime, you can tweet us your questions or topic ideas at ETF Edge CNBC. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Here's to greater possibilities together. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.